Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. I'm on assignment in America at the moment, making a radio documentary about Donald Trump's first 100 days in office. And I decided to ask someone who's been in the military a bit about how the military views the new president. Robert Bateman is a historian and a recently retired lieutenant colonel from the United States Army. He served in Iraq and Afghanistan, among other places, and is currently a fellow at New America, and he also blogs for Esquire magazine. I began by asking him what sort of feeling his fellow officers who are still in the Army have about President Donald Trump. I think there's there's probably no small part of some trepidation um, because of the uncertainty of what is the course and the direction that the president wants to take. He hasn't clearly enunciated any overarching vision or goal. America first is a slogan. That's well and fine, but it doesn't provide any understanding of his guiding principles as far as grand strategy or national strategy or national military strategy. And so lacking such guidance is almost as confusing as having bad guidance. He seems to be coming into the idea that gestures are policy. Uh, Well, gestures can make up a component of policy. They can, they can, be used as an element when you are trying to reinforce a particular point or a particular aspect of a policy. Unfortunately, what we have is a lack of policy. And as you were saying, you know, it does appear that he is substituting um, theater for substance. When when you were serving, did you ever have, you know, commanders-in-chief who were similar? Uh, you know, I really couldn't say that I I first came into uniform under Reagan and then Bush and then Clinton, obviously, and, uh, even Bush 43 and and then President Obama. And in each case, there was from the very inaugural, some sort of principle stated about where they stood and what, where they would be going, um, with regards to grand strategy and, and national strategy. Yeah, but not with this one. No, not with this one. He uh, he had other things that were on his mind during the inaugural. What other thing? You're smiling there. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, living here in, in D.C., I saw the size of the crowds uh, with my own eyes. I didn't need photographic evidence, but apparently... He didn't like the photographic evidence. Is he seeing photographic evidence when he's making a decision to throw tomahawks at Syria? Or is he? Is this something that's just ordered up? I mean, what have you heard? Is it ordered up out of the blue? Or is he going, is he going through the usual procedures with his security and his defense chiefs? Uh, the best indicators that, that you'd have about what sort of briefing process he's, he's receiving... Every president receives their briefings in a different way. Um, the news that has been coming out has been about the presidential decision briefs and, and presidential information briefs usually presented by the intelligence community. So, for example, President Obama 
preferred 10 pages of typewritten material that he would read ahead of time, and then he would question when he got an oral briefing. Uh, various other presidents have preferred more graphics, more visuals. Um, the current president apparently prefers one page, just bullet points, and the evidence seems to suggest that he doesn't look too closely at even that one page. That suggests that whatever briefing, whatever military decision briefings he's receiving are probably fairly truncated and and uh, couched in the lowest common denominator terms. So as we speak, the news of the day is both Syria, but also there's a flotilla heading towards the Korean Peninsula, which in, you know, in an age of gestural news, you know, it's all over, visuals, aircraft carriers surrounded by other warships. What is this about? What do you think is happening here? Uh, well, it, it is a, a gesture again. The carrier strike group based around the, the carrier Carl Vinson uh, on paper has quite a bit of punch. Uh, it is, there's the aircraft carrier itself and then two destroyers and a cruiser. Uh, but in the reality, in any sort of um, Korean scenario, that aircraft carrier is as useless as tits on a boar hog. Um, it would be the missiles on the two destroyers and the cruiser. But one thing that I've, I've noticed is that nobody's really been talking about um, the idea of the us conducting an attack. That's nowhere near enough force. Uh, because North Korea is not like Syria, has a much more significant and robust air defense systems, and not only that, but all their targets are hardened, and the, the cruise missiles are not designed for hardened targets. Uh, but the, uh, the cruiser does have an interesting system on it that nobody else does. It's called the standard missile, but it's the standard missile version 3, and that can shoot down ballistic missiles. It's part of our National Ballistic Missile Defense Shield. If I was a betting man, I would say that would be the utility in the coming days of having that carrier strike group there. Not for the carrier, and not for the Tomahawk cruise missiles on the destroyers, but for the defensive capacity on the Ticonderoga-class um, cruiser, the uh, Lake Champlain. Right. So in case... The North Korean leadership decides to keep throwing ballistic missiles or testing them, then they can be shot down. Uh, that That is a possibility that had occurred to me. Hmm. Is there a precedent for this kind of confused, it's, you know, I mean, that's being polite, kind of confused leadership in the White House? Uh, certainly, there, there are across uh, 200, you know, two and a half two and a quarter centuries, uh, there have been several precedents. The, the one that, that pops into my head immediately is that of another man who came from a different profession than political. Uh, that was uh, General Ulysses Grant, who was a great general, but a horrible president. And his problem, of course, was he surrounded himself with... Um, people that he thought he could trust because he grew up in a culture, the military culture, where you trust everyone until they demonstrate that they're not trustworthy. 
as opposed to somebody who grew up as a politician who is you trust nobody <laughs> until they demonstrate that they can be trusted. So you, you, you I don't know, Grant, Grant's reputation in history is burnished both by his accomplishments on the battlefield and his exceptionally well-written memoirs, which he had to write to get out of debt. But so it, se- it seems, I'm lifting an eyebrow for people who are just listening, that to compare Donald Trump, who just doesn't seem to have done much except build and fortunes and lose them, seems a tough comparison. Well, Grant built a fortune and lost it too, and then regained it. it that that those memoirs, he was writing them as he was dying of cancer, which lent some urgency to the speed at which he wrote. Although hopefully. Not all writers have to have cancer to be able to write quickly and well. If you were still in the military, and if you had been tapped on the shoulder, not by this president, by a different president, to advise on the big security challenges that are likely to be coming up over the next 24 to 48 months, what would you be telling them? Um, The concept of security challenges, when you look at it from a grand strategic view, also involves ideas of diplomacy and economics and you know it, it's and and uh, influence far more than merely the use of military force and so when you're looking at long-term challenges uh, one of the areas that concerns me most is uh, relative influence and potential conflicts throughout Africa um, and in particular the potential for competition between us and and uh, China um, across many nations where corruption is endemic and therefore forms an element of the threat to national and economic security and stability. It's interesting because we, we never ever hear about that. Um, periodically, The Economist or the Financial Times will have a special section about you know, whether a portion of Africa, some East Africa, West Africa, coming out of coming out of corrupt period, going back into corruption, the effect of oil in Angola. But we never hear about that competition because what we hear about is the disintegration of the Middle East and into the Horn of Africa, but we never hear about that. So that's interesting. That's what you would be pointing people towards. Uh, yes, I... It- it's not a new development, um, and you know, that you don't hear it that often. Just, I'm sorry, you're sitting down with a true DC geek, <laughs> making those lines. Um, but it's it's not a new development, and we've seen this sort of thing developing over the past 15 to 20 years. Um, it is just an extension of, for example, uh, for the for the Chinese, what they're doing in the South China Sea is the first ring of of their um, expansionist thoughts. The next ring is more subtle. The ports that they helped build at uh, Hambutota in um, southern Sri Lanka near Gaul, and then uh, Guandahar in Pakistan. These are blue water major ports now built with Chinese loans and construction expertise. And the Chinese never do anything out of sheer charity. Uh, you're seeing similar efforts spread across Africa, um, particularly in places where 
the United States doesn't have as much influence and almost to a degree can't have as much influence because of the nature of, uh, of our rules about dealing with certain regimes and, and in certain environments. Right. Um, I know that China has provided all kinds of security infrastructure to keep the ever-living um, ruler of Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe, in power. I mean, they provide all manner of sophisticated eavesdropping so that he can keep his population subjugated. I assume they do it elsewhere as well. Uh, and it's not just in the security department. It, it's uh, take, for example, you know, road building. Um, government of country X that wants to build a road infrastructure, just flat out bridges and highways. Um, China will come forward as the guarantor of a loan, provided that you hire one of these two or three Chinese companies that will then do the construction. So uh, then the money comes back to China plus interest. Um, and along the way, they've got you in their pockets much as anybody would do shaking down a client on the docks. Similar concept, just much, much larger. So what do you reckon is going to happen over the next six months in terms of Syria with this current pushback against Russia and with North Korea? You know, in the, what are we at? Day seventy-seven or eighty, 80, somewhere. Eighty, 80 something. Yeah. Yeah. The past eighty days have taught me I can't predict what is going to happen with this administration in any way, shape, or form. The I can predict what may be recommended to him, uh, but I can't predict what he is ultimately going to decide to do. That seems to be all over the map by the hour, uh, let alone the days or the weeks. And so it would be a very imprudent thing for anybody uh, to try and forecast where this current president is going to go in weeks or months ahead. But now I'm going to ask you, because I, I, mean, I may not use it as... When you were, when you were in the field, in a, place, in a place like Afghanistan, surely there had to be moments like this where you were in charge of a whole bunch of people who needed to know decisions, and the people who were going to transmit orders to you so you could make those decisions had no bloody idea because they were waiting for someone else to transmit their decisions. Well, by its very nature, all of war is chaos. Um, the, the, uh, the rub on the Americans is uh, that, based upon that observation, all war is chaos. But the reason the Americans do it well is because they practice chaos on a daily basis. Um, so it is something that you get used to. Having, having things that come down from higher, anybody from a second lieutenant up through a general will consistently tell you that the people above him don't know what the hell they're talking about. But that's the nature of the animal. Uh, you know, the other... The other joke I used to speak of when I served with the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps, um, which is based in Gloucestershire, and the joke that we had when we were downrange in Afghanistan was uh, <clears throat> I tried to explain that they'd heard of the, the book and the movie Catch-22, and I said, until you actually go to war beside the Americans, you don't realize that that's not fiction, it's a documentary. 
Okay, thanks very much. My pleasure. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Thanks to Robert Bateman for joining me. If you liked what you heard, please share it. And go to the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, where you can hear lots, lots more. And you can make a donation to keep these podcasts coming.